All right, let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for these children that we just saw walking by. We pray, Lord, that they would come to know you and serve you, that their life would be committed to you. We pray for their parents, that you would lead them and guide them and encourage them, and that they would be a good example to their children. They would want to be like their mom and dad for knowing these men and women who have known the Lord for so Lord, been so long. Be with us, help us as we come to your scriptures, we pray today. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. As you're aware, we're coming to a time where it's not too far from now, we're going to start be thinking more about dealing with our taxes. Our message this morning is called the gospel and the government. And I know there's some people that are already going, the government? I don't want nothing to do with that government, you know? But it's a part of our life. It's part of our world. And so we want to talk about chapter 13 as an important chapter. What's interesting, chapter 12 is this amazingly beautiful chapter. Somebody told me they've been memorizing that chapter, chapter 12. It's so lovely, so gorgeous, got so much power to it. And you get to this one, it's like, well, what does the government have to do with the gospel, the good news of what God has for us? But Paul spent quite a bit of time in chapter 13 of saying, I really think we need to talk about this because this is going to be an issue. It was an issue and was going to continue to be an issue. So if you have your Bible, you might want to turn to Romans chapter 13. The slides will also be on there if you don't have that or you just want to follow. But I encourage you to look at this section and don't wipe, you know, just say, oh, I don't, I don't care what the government is. It is important. And Paul took a significant amount of time talking about how do we as Christians relate with the government. And that's a hard one. And as we're going to see in the, past, in the passage, it's going to be difficult because some of these passages are very, very strong. And we might not actually like them that much. So let's see what the Apostle Paul has. By the way, taxes are something that go way, way back. Now, this is all for free. I'm not going to charge you for you to know. But taxes, as far as we know, go all the way back to the time of Egypt. Back in the time of Egypt, when they started taking taxes, and what they did, for, they didn't have coins, but they did cooking oil that determined how much cooking oil you had and what you sold for it. And that was significant for them. So Egypt was that had taxes. Greece, they of course had taxes. And what they did is after the battle, if they won, they would take some of the money back that they had and what they did. And it was a good thing for them. And so they did taxes. The ones were most significant that we think about are the Romans. The Romans, for them, mostly in the beginning was custom duties. People were coming by with things you had to pay. Oh, you got to you know, pay a certain amount of money for bringing this stuff over here or doing that. And so the Romans became famous for dealing with taxes. And of course, we realized, too, that this became a big thing during the time of Jesus. By the way, Julius Caesar, people were upset because the tax level was 1%. Would any of you be willing to settle just a 1% tax? Does anybody know what maybe the normal one is today, just guessing? I don't know. I'm asking. Does anybody have a good idea? What do you think? 35 to 40, maybe? This was 1%. You might want to just go back to Rome, but don't go. But notice this passage, what we're talking about here. By the way, this is America. America had to deal with taxes. Because you know what happened, we talked about when they were, they were starting in the northern part of the area where I'm from, in Philadelphia, and that. A lot of the guys started moving west over the Alleghenies, and that was a really rough area, it was mostly Indians. 
And uh, they thought because they had gone and you know, done all these things, they shouldn't be taxed. And the government was saying, you need to be taxed. And so what we had what was called the Whiskey Rebellion. It was not fighting about who got to drink the whiskey. It was about who had to pay taxes on the whiskey. And the point was, these guys said, man, we're living out here in the frontier, and you want us to pay taxes? I mean, we've got Indians all around us. You know, it's dangerous. We're not paying. And George Washington said, yes, you are going to pay. In fact, he sent troops out to stop them and make them to pay. And two of them he took back, and they said they were going to hang them. And Washington said, no, we're not going to hang them. And they finally, they settled it, and they realized they were going to have to pay taxes. No one likes taxes. No one likes the tax man. But it is certainly part of our world going back for a long, long time. And so when Paul starts talking here about taxes, this is all about what we're about in this passage. So follow with me as we go through this passage. Because right from the beginning, Paul says something that some of us is going to grate on us a little bit. Everyone must submit to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God. And those that are, excuse me, and those that exist are instituted by God. Now stop for a minute. Think about the context. Who's in charge at this point? It's the Romans. What have the Romans been doing? Well, they've been doing a lot of things. They've done a lot of good things, roads, things, a lot of good things. But it was the Romans that killed Jesus. And the Christians are being told by Paul, everyone must submit to the governing authorities. There's a lot of people out there that they don't want anything to do with the Romans. There's always little groups around the side that are plotting on how they could take out the Romans. It would actually happen a lot later. But Paul seems very strong in saying the government is important. This is important in our culture today. If you go on the internet, you can find all these kind of quirky and strange things like, you just do this and you'll never have to pay taxes again. You're right, you won't have to pay taxes again because once they put you in jail, you're not going to have to worry about that anymore. But the point is, people try to find ways to get around it. Some of them are very ingenious. Some of them work, at least for a while. But Paul's saying, you know, wait a minute. I'm telling you, it's important that you recognize who the authorities are. Now, again, a lot of us, you can imagine, they're thinking, these Romans are the ones that killed Jesus. These are the ones that are persecuting some of our own people. And here, you're going to tell us that we need to do that? He goes, yeah. Because it says, those that exist are instituted by God. And if that's not only to make some people mad, go to the verse one he talks about here. Why is this passage and chapter controversial? Because it makes it very strong. Let me go over it again. Everyone must submit to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God. In other words, saying God is the one that's leading the person in charge here to do what he needs to do. That's a strange kind of thing. But he's making it pretty clear, saying God is at work in this. And you need to, to, to work with what God has for you. Now notice what he says in verse 2. So then, the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command. When you turn away, that you're not going to follow what the government says, he said, you're turning away from what God has done. He said, those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. Paul is very strong here in this thing where the Romans are, the fact that God has a good purpose in using the government for the betterment of the society. Some of us would not like that, but it's exactly what he's teaching. Notice if you would when he says in verse three, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, 
but to bad. In other words, if you're you know, you're robber or something like that, well, you might be living in fear a lot of times because you're afraid you're going to get caught. No one likes that. About a month ago, we were picking up our daughter, Hope, at the, ho uh, oh, say the hospital. It wasn't the hospital, thank goodness. <laughs> it was at DFW Airport, and it was late, and it was misty, and I was tired, and we're driving home on Beltline Road, and we're almost there. And right behind me, roo, 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 these lights start going. And Kathy was not particularly happy at that moment, and I wasn't particularly happy, and, and we pulled over, and can I see your license, you know, da, 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 you know, all that kind of stuff. And he said, well, you know, there's a light out on the back, like where your license plate is, and it's out. I said, gee, I'm sorry. I didn't even know they had one light there. He said, yeah, they do, and you need to get fixed. And you're a little bit over the, what you need to do in terms of speed. I said, yeah, I'm really sorry. You know, I, I really appreciate it. He goes, well, I'm going to let you go. And I said, well, thank you very much. I've been thinking, I was thinking about this, you know, I, I haven't had a ticket in over 20 years. And here I was going to get my first one in 20 years. And he was very nice, and he let me go. And I'm glad it was, you know, it wasn't a big deal, but it made me think, okay, you know, I'm glad we have people like this. Now think about it. And here in Beltline Road, where we drive often, it's usually 40 miles an hour, or it often goes down to 35, okay? That's not that fast. Think about if you said, you know what, it's not fair that we should have to have people can drive whatever speed they want to go. Would you like to be on that road when you can go 150 miles an hour if you choose to? In other words, these things are here for our ultimate good. We don't always believe that. But the point is saying, listen, God has certain things. He uses government to do what he wants to do with his people. He says, do you want to be unafraid of the authority? No, you shouldn't be afraid of them. Do good, and you'll have its approval. Now again, a lot of us are like, mm, I don't know about that. We'll get to this. He said, and he's getting even stronger here. For government is God's servant to you for good. When's the last time you went to one of the people that you know in the government and say, thank you so much for serving? I can't remember ever doing that. But Paul seems to be saying that God uses people like us, people who are in positions of authority, for our ultimate good. But he said, if you do wrong, be afraid, because it doesn't for he doesn't carry the sword for no reason, whether he means they're actually going to cut his head off with the sword, we don't know. But the point is, it could be bad. For government is God's servant as an avenger that will bring wrath on the one who does wrong. In other words, do what's right. He said, for government is God's servant for good. Here's a famous quote. The only thing worse than bad government is no government. I was reading a book recently about the fall of Berlin. Nazism was to be being destroyed, coming almost to an end. And they're talking about you know, these wonderful women and children and stuff and where the government was just coming to pieces. And you had you know, the, the tragic thing of seeing women grabbing other women and taking their food and knocking other people down, you know, knocking people on the ground trying to get food for their family. The chaos that there is and that's going on. The Russians were coming and people are in terror and the place is just a mess. And you're thinking, well, there is a role for government. The only thing worse than bad government is no government. Look at some of these countries, particularly in Africa, See what's happening in the Middle East when there is no government. We take it for granted. We've been so blessed in this country that we forget 
that it's important for us to recognize that God wants us to be able to deal with those that have to deal with the government. Look what he says. For government is God's servant for you for good, but if you do wrong, be afraid because it doesn't carry the sword for no reason. For government is God's servant and avenger that brings wrath on one who is wrong. Therefore, you must submit not only because of wrath, in other words, they may punish you, but this is important, but also because of your conscience. In your conscience, you should realize, is this wrong for me to resist them? Yeah, it is. And so I'm not going to do that. It's an unusual phrase, but it's important what he has to say. And for this reason, you pay taxes. Now remember, this is almost 2,000 years ago. So and the reason you pay taxes, since its authorities are God's public servants. Now think about that. The authorities are God's public servants continually attending to these tasks. Paul has a very high view of the role of government. I'm sure he saw places where it wasn't a good government and how terrible that was for people. So notice what he says. He says, all right, pay your obligations to everyone. Really? Yeah. Taxes to those who owe taxes. Tolls to you who owe tolls. Respect. He's kind of moving apart a little bit from there. Respect to who you respect. And honor to those you owe honor. And it's interesting what he's saying here, because he's saying, this is what God has ordained for us as believers. And then he goes to a little bit segue here, kind of kind of moves a little bit of a different direction, and says, this passage says, do not owe anyone anything. This is the whole thing dealing with debt and things like that. But he says, except to love one another. That's the one debt you ought to keep with you is the debt of the fact of loving one another. We always do need to be invo involved with that. He said, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. A, a good Jewish rabbi would go, oy vey, why are you saying that? That's not right. It's not just love that's going to fulfill the law. Paul's saying, yeah, it really is. We're thankful for the Old Testament that God gave us. We gave, thank you for the Ten Commandments. We thank you for the 362 laws that you gave it. But we are now under a new covenant. And he's telling us for the one who loves, love is the one that fulfills, the thing that fulfills the law of God. And so he took a kind of segue and then he starts coming back. And he says, these are the ones, he said, we know these. These are the ones that are enduring. We talked, saw these were, you know, Moses got this at the mountain and all that, and the fire and the smoke and the earthquakes. He said, these are the key ones that you need to remember. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not covet. And if there's any other commandments, well, there were like 300 more. He said, they're all summed up by this. Love your neighbor as yourself. He keeps coming back to the role of love in our relationships and how that changes the way we live our life. Verse 10, he says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Now, what's interesting in this passage is what he's going to do next. He says this. He starts, goes another tangent, but it's an important tangent. He said this. Besides this, about the law, he said, knowing the time, it's already the hour for you to wake up from sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. It's an odd verse, but in a beautiful context. Knowing the time, 
Christ is coming. We don't know exactly when, but we know he's coming. It's already the hour for you to wake up. Are you, are you ready? Are you ready to go if the Lord says, now I'm taking you this moment? Are you ready to meet him? Are you longing for the return of Christ? Many of us have been Christians so long. It's like, yeah, I'm longing, but you know, I've got a lot of things to do. I've got kids to raise, da-da-da-da. Do we long for what God has for us? For now, our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. In other words, every day you're getting closer to the return of Christ. We wish we knew exactly when that was, but he's told us repeatedly, you're not going to know the hour of the day until the Lord returns. And notice what he says here. The night is nearly over. Think about our culture. The night is nearly over. The daylight is near. So let us discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. He likes that darkness light metaphor that he uses a lot. Put on the armor of light. Let's walk with decency as in the daylight, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy. And then he has this beautiful phrase, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no plans to satisfy the fleshly desires, living a life of godliness before him. Now this passage is beautiful. It's a little unusual. But it's reminding again, is God gives us government to be able to help his people, even the Romans. And you can imagine there are a lot of Jewish people saying, you know, my, my grandmother was tortured by the Romans, and you want me to respect them? Paul says, yes. You don't have to grieve with what they're doing, but you have to recognize they do have authority. And God uses that to keep people from being absolutely crazy and going weird. And he says it's very, very important. Now the question comes up all the time when you preach this passage is, are you saying that all the time when the government tells us to do it, we need to do it? And I would have to answer Ed Bloom kind of way. Hmm, yes and no. Yes, because we just read the passage that says, yes, you do. But there's also in the same passage that says, maybe there's times you have to say no and you disobey. For example, when do we refuse to obey the government? Here we just spent the whole thing talking about why you need to do it. But what about when there's times when you say, you know what, I'm not gonna follow that. And that's important. Acts chapter four, 18 and 19. Peter and John, they're on here. They've been preaching out in the streets. People are coming to know the Lord. Great things are doing. And the Sanhedrin and the officials, they don't know what to do. And they said, so they called them and they ordered them not to preach or teach in all the name of Jesus. Now, we're going to let you go, but we don't want you to hear any more about us. You're not going to do it. And right away, they've got a crisis to deal with. The government says, no, you're not going to do it. And the apostles said, you know what? You're our king, but we have a king greater than you. And that king that's greater than you, we're following him and not you. So what happens? It says, but Peter and John said, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than God, you decide, for we are unable to, we are unable to stop speaking what we have seen. In other words, we're not giving up. Now notice what they're doing. They made it very clear. We understand what you want. You don't want us to talk about Jesus anymore. 
And they're saying, I'm sorry, you know, we are going to go with our king. And his name is not Julius Caesar or Augustus. We're going to have to do that. And with the understanding of that could cost you something. There could be great things that could happen that'd be bad because we're unwilling to do that. They went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin rejoicing that they were counted out, they were counted worthy to be dishonored on behalf of the name, the name of Jesus. What a privilege that we could experience persecution out of love for our God. Look what it says in this passage, it's important. Many of you are familiar with this person. Many of you have read his book. Eric Metaxas wrote a tremendous book on it. If you haven't read it, you need to read it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of my favorite people, and many of you know Sir. I'll make this real quick. But as you know, he was a very, very smart guy, very sharp. He became a pastor in the Lutheran Church right at the time when Nazis started taking control of Germany. And right away, he had to make some very, very different, very, 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 very difficult decisions to make. For example, he was a pastor. The government says, you're going to put the swastika right there on that table where we do the Lord's Supper. And Bonhoeffer says, well, I'm not doing that. Yes, you will. Everyone, every church is going to have that. He goes, I'm not doing it. So already, he's in trouble. What happens a little bit later is he's given the opportunity as a pastor to speak all across Germany. So he got up and said, you know what, all of you, many of you are now following the Fuhrer and you're a fool to do so. And he said, our one is we need to follow is not the Fuhrer, Adolf Hitler, it is Jesus is the one that we need to follow. And they turned him off on the radio so no one could hear him anymore. Then a little bit later, what happened? He started finding out why were so many of these caskets coming about where, we're, where we are, where we live in Germany. And they realized that the Germans, through the Nazis, were finding all that were so retarded, all those who were not too smart, they were killing them. It was a euthanation project. Why would we spend money and time for people that are not really helping out in what we're doing? And so they were killing them. And Bonhoeffer was willing to step and say, you are killing our children. They have value in the sight of God. It was one of the few times that the Nazis turned back and said, okay, we'll stop. So Bonhoeffer was willing to do that, to take that chance. He had an opportunity to go to England. And he got to England, everybody said, everybody sees this happening. This is going to be war coming very soon. We would like you to work here at the seminary in New York City. We've got a place for you. It's going to be great. Bonhoeffer said, I cannot leave. I know what's coming, but I have to go back to Germany. And people said, please don't do that. You know what they're going to do. The Gestapo is going to get you as soon as you get back. He said, I, I can't do this. And he went back, and so they had seminaries that they hid. They were hidden. They'd go from place to place and continue their work teaching young men how to be pastors. But then as you know the story, what happened is he got involved in the plot to kill Hitler. He personally was not involved, but he was bringing paper back and forth to different groups, and they caught him. And he knew what was going to happen. I was there at the place where he had been in. And there they caught him, and they realized that he was part of that plot. And so two weeks 
before the Allies got there at Flossenburg. They stripped him and they hung him. And he was gone. If he only could hold on for two more weeks, he could have probably lived, but he didn't. He died. But as he was dying, just before he died, he said, this is the end, but it's not the end for me. I'll be with the Lord forever. Now think about that. How many of us in that kind of situation where the government says, you are going to do this, and you're willing to say, you know what? That is so opposed to everything that the gospel is about. I'm willing to take the consequences. And of course, as you know, there's many others besides Bonhoeffer who were sent to the camps. Few of them ever came out. Most of them were just cooked and gone. But it reminds us again that we, in general, in God's word, is we take the government for, uh, as we understand it, we do all that we can to be able to help them and to be what they've asked us to do. But there comes a point where you say, I cannot do that. I cannot, I will not do that. And I realize that there'll be problems because of that. And the question is, what would happen to us? Will we have to say no to our government? What do we do? When we have to say no to our government, will we be willing to pay the price of what that would be like to follow Jesus? Bishop Polycarp of Smyrna. I know Polycarp sounds like a funny name for a bishop. It sounds like a fish, but it's not, okay? Bishop Polycarp was an old man. The Romans caught him. He'd been on the move. They caught him and said, all you need to do is burn a little incense to the majesty of the Caesar, and we're going to let you go, and you're an old man. You don't want to be in trouble, do you? He goes, no, I don't want to do that. He said, just do this. All you do is light it. Just talk about the good things about the Caesar. We'll take a think five minutes. We'll write this all out for you, and you can show it to everybody that you are now working with us in the government, and you're okay. We won't touch you. And right there, here's this poor old man. He's a bishop trying to think, what do I do? And so they brought him again back into the, from the, where he was in the cell. And they said, listen, we want to talk to you one more time about this. Do you realize it's going to come? He said, I understand. And he said, let me tell you what this. He said, 86 years I've served him, Christ. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? He said, okay. So they burned him to death. How would we respond if that was us? I don't think you ever know until you're right there at that moment. But it raises the question, what would we be willing to endure for the sake of, gospel, of the gospel? Lord, we're grateful for this passage. It starts off so strange talking about taxes and it ends up with the fact that there are times where because we know you are our king, we may have to say no to our government, and we have to